What's up? This is Jordan Blackman. You're listening to the Playmakers Podcast, where I interview game industry legends and luminaries and suss out things that are going to be useful to you in your business, in the game industry, and in your craft of making games. This week, Adrian Crook, founder of Adrian Crook and Associates, one of the biggest free-to-play game consultancies in the biz. We get deep into the biz on this week's episode. Stay tuned, because it's on now. So Adrian and I go way back when I was design producer at Zynga. He and I worked together on Frontierville and we became good friends and we've really worked together ever since. I spent a lot of time working with Adrian Crook and Associates and Adrian is a incredible producer who actually I think won producer of the year in Canada, you know, some moons back and has created and grown Adrian Crook and Associates, a free-to-play consultancy that you're going to learn all about in this episode. And, you know, they've had most of the big companies as their clients. They've worked with over 100 studios, and you're going to hear more about that, but that includes companies like Microsoft and Zynga and Capcom and EA and so on. So really a, a lot of the big ones. And Adrian gets into a lot of really useful business subjects in this episode. We talk about the tools that he uses to create a performance dashboard for his business and also to the tools he likes to use to kind of run his business, all the software as a service tools. And, you know, Adrian, having seen so many different uh, studios and so many different free-to-play games, he walks us through some of the biggest common mistakes that he sees teams making in the domain of free-to-play both on a design side and on a business side. And we also talk about how to approach the galaxy of third-party tools that are out there. And this is something I've really been diving headfirst into myself because, you know, this landscape is constantly changing and evolving. And there's so many different sophisticated partners and third-party tool providers that you can work with, you know, not just analytics, but advertising and acquisition as well. There's a lot of tools now that are doing AI for helping you. Basically, the next evolution of split testing is AI-assisted design and testing. So we talk about that, and we also talk about what's next. What's next for the industry? And Adrian gives his outlook on virtual reality. And we also talk about what's next for the freemium model. Now, Adrian and I recorded this interview a few months back now, and, and I actually think some things that we talk about have evolved. So I think that in the VR funding space, I do think that investors have taken a step back and we're kind of, that pendulum has sort of swung back a little bit and, and kind of, you know, maybe the next thing is it's, gonna, it's going to then break through possibly in, um, you know, in the next year or so. And obviously that would accelerate things again. So I do think that has changed a little bit and also, Empire, the game that we talk about, is actually out in worldwide launch and is uh, really climbing up the ranks in the simulation category, both on iOS and Android. It's doing fantastic. So it's not in soft launch anymore. You can still check it out. And with that, I will let us get into the interview with Adrian. Hey, what's up, Adrian? Welcome to Playmakers. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, really good to have you on. <laughs> Definitely. So, you know, you and I go way, way back, and, and I know that your design work goes back even further than that. 
And you've been running your consultancy since what, 2008? Yeah, like January 2008 when I left uh, Relic Entertainment, which is like a a strategy game developer here in Vancouver. That was the last full-time gig I had. Yeah, one of the best strategy game developers of all time. No No big deal. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I think the games I made for them weren't some of their best. I made uh, the outfit for the Xbox 360, which was like that. a yeah, like a squad-based third-person action game that uh, that was a real tough one. We took like a like a PC RTS engine and crammed it onto an Xbox 360 launch title, and uh, it was non-trivial. So, anyways, we tried our best. A lot of innovative stuff, but very Apple Newton in its success. <laughs> That's not that's not something you want to be. Which is to say, yeah, not much success. Uh, Ahead of your time. Ahead of your time. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you you you're one of the first people. Actually, the first person I know who who kind of was playing in that design consultancy space, especially in mobile. What made you pick that up after the relic stuff? Actually, that you know, I didn't intend for this to be a good segue, but. I've always been... Did you intend for it to be a bad segue? Yeah. I really wanted to make it a train wreck of a segue. I've always been kind of like going back into the 90s, more more web-oriented than most of my game industry colleagues. I started at EA in 1995, and I, on the side, was really fascinated by the internet, and it was always the, you know, the guy that had his, his own sites and bought and sold domain names and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't until around 2006 that some of this started to come together with the free-to-play movement sort of washing up on North American shores. You saw like, uh, geez, uh, like Hot or Not and all that kind of stuff, experimenting with freemium sort of models even before you know Facebook, before mobile. And I remember going to the Virtual Goods Summit in 2006, the very first one, and then started blogging about that hmm. because this was like, oh, look at this. There's this confluence between my video game or, or sort of um, interactive entertainment world and the web world, which is all about freemium or free-to-play or whatever you wanted to call it. So I really started to get excited about that and started to blog about that at a blog I had at the time called free2play.biz, and I ran that for a few years. And that got me, I think, probably the first... Um, was that while you were still at Relic or Yeah, like 2000, 2006 to 2008 was when I was doing that. And so the last couple of years when I was at Relic, I was blogging about that stuff and going to conferences about that. Wow. And then I spoke at GDC in 2008 in front of like four or 500 people about uh, freemium. And I think that might have been like the first freemium talk at GDC North America, at least. And that was, at, you know, I think two months into kicking off my consultancy. And I think... That is what gave us, you know, us, me at the time, a bit of momentum. Uh, we sort of became known as as having some early mover advantage in, in freemium, at least at that point. But it was a way different industry to what it is today. In that it was just nobody knew what was going on, what it was going to be. I mean, I think it's amazing that you were working on a pretty hardcore RTS on Xbox while writing free-to-play.biz. <laughs> Yeah. And then the last couple of years at Relic, I was working on new product development. So just like, what could we do that was like, you know, sort of the small furry animals? Like, can we can we make cool new concepts and can we use um, like maybe a stage gate methodology where you develop multiple concepts and then you're doubling down on, you know, every second one that makes the cut at certain milestones. And yeah, we were trying out sort of techniques like that to make better decisions about new product design. And so I was doing that at the same time as I was doing the blogging on the side, more just out of passion. And then um, Lee Alexander, who was uh, back then doing uh, Worlds in Motion, was the name of the blog. 
and that was all about freemium she was the also running that uh i think it might have even been called worlds in motion summit or basically like the freemium summit portion of gdc that year and that's why she had reached out to me to speak at that and so i kind of have to credit her with giving me that opportunity there so having been incredibly early to the kind of free-to-play mobile party has it worked out kind of the way you expected what surprised you along the way to arnold schwarzenegger advertising uh (laughs) at the super bowl yeah, I don't know if I ever thought it would quite get that big, but it was pretty plainly evident that it's hard to beat free as a price. So, you know, there I think there were more sort of holdouts in the early days in North America, at least when it came to freemium gaming than there were in other parts of the world. But it was just a matter of the culture changing. And I think it, for the most part, obviously it has, no matter what. So maybe some of the more core gamers still think about freemium, but I think that's pretty much tipped. So I'm not sure if much has surprised me in terms of how it's rolled out. I mean, like I said, just mostly the scale. But I, I didn't have any doubt. Like I remember recalling some articles being written debating whether or not freemium would really catch on in the early days. And I don't think I ever had ever any doubt that it would catch on. That seemed pretty obvious. And what about going out on your own? What was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, people always ask me like, well, what should I, you know, have or what should I get or whatever? Like, what should I, I do when I want to start out on my own? And I, and I always tell them I you should get it. I asked you that once. <laughs> yeah, probably. Like, a lot of people ask me that. I say, well, you should definitely have a good line of credit. Like, that's <laughs> the, the number one thing that uh, I think for the first two years of starting out on my own, I had like, uh, well, I had a house at the time and we used that as the line of credit. I think I probably went 80 grand in the hole and then dug out of it and then 80 grand in the hole again and dug out of it. It was wow. very real. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that number out loud, but uh, it was pretty, We're making pretty up and down. Yeah. Right. Like at the time I wanted to get out of the house, uh, or I, you know, simultaneously stay in the house and get out of the house. Like I had my second kid had just arrived. We had just bought a big house. Um, second of five. Second of five. That's right. I have five kids. Uh, and we just bought a big house like in a nearby suburb of Vancouver. And I would like leave in the morning, maybe just after the kids woke up and then get back from work just after or just before they went to bed. And it was just like, this is just, you know, no way to live. <laughs> it's like I wanted to see my kids actually grow up and I wanted more control over my time. I found it odd that like in the in the games industry, your effort really isn't correlated with a reward. So if, you know, if the studio is really busy, you got to show up and do unpaid overtime. If it's really slack, you're still expected to show up nine to five and sit at your desk. It just made no sense to me. So now I probably work more, but I work at, you know, unpredictable hours. So uh, I may decide to, you know, hang out with a kid during the day for a little bit, but then work, you know, after they go to bed or mix of everything. And, it's been vastly more rewarding to be on my own, even though it's uh, it's a lot more stressful, I would say, overall. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think, you know, knowing you a little bit, I think it's also a, a personality thing where, like, you know, you may be working more, but you know that you're working in the way that you choose on the deals that you choose for the company that you've created. Oh, yeah, you're right. And I think it's probably maybe specific to my personality where I just don't relax as much as I could. I've I've tried to solve this lately just through numbers. That's sort of how I try to solve a lot of things, even though I'm generally terrible at numbers. But like I've created an internal dashboard that shows me our runway. So like a function of the business we have now, cash in the bank, like accounts, receivable, payable, all that kind of stuff, basically in uh, represented in 
number of months until we ran out of money, you know, so I can look at that and go, okay, I can sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because for years, I didn't have that. And you just kind of had this sense that, oh, if we don't get business, I don't know, tomorrow or the next week, then maybe we'll be out of business next month. That got a little stressful. So this is (laughs) taking a bit of the stress off, you know. And and you have to run some special calculations for each child, just adding on top there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I can't exactly ask them to eat ramen noodles to get by. I can do it myself, but uh, they demand a certain amount of Cheerios and a certain amount of chicken fingers and (laughs) dad food, basically, but still. So what tool are you actually using for that? Because I've seen some dashboards uh, that you have, and I'm curious what what you're running. So I looked at a few. I've used things like Cyfe before, C-Y-F-E, mm-hmm. um, and that was okay, but I found there were some constraints on the amount of uh, data you, like you could display in terms of screen real estate, and I still find that with Clipfolio, which is what we're using now, K-L-I-P-Folio.com. But I found Clipfolio to just be a little bit tighter, and what I've done now is I've, I'm using a... I believe he's based in Russia. Uh, basically, uh, I think I found them via whatever Elance is called now, Upwork. Mm-hmm. Probably found them via Upwork, searching for a Clipfolio specialist. And I mean, I may have, maybe we've spent like, I bet you we haven't spent more than 400 bucks so far on dashboard development, you know, because they bill so, their hourly is so low. And uh, it's just been so worth it because it's the kind of stuff that if I was farting around with it myself, I would burn like days or weeks of my time trying to get than you know what I need done and now I can just write up some specs in a Google Doc you know he's also in my Skype and we can just go back and forth until we have the you know the, all the metrics we need and we've so we've got like a key metrics for the business dashboard and we've also got like a you know we've just brought on a communications associate um, and so he's developing his own I was just on the phone last night with the, our dashboard developer he's developing his own dashboard to track all of our metrics like you know, followers and uh, website visits and more in-depth stuff than that. Okay, so we'll put Clipfolio and Upwork uh, up on the tools for this for this episode. What have been some other challenges that you've run into, you know, being out on, quote-unquote, on your own, although, you know, you have a team around you now? Yeah. You know what I'll do is I'll also, uh, I've got a whole spreadsheet of all the tools we use, and I'd be happy to get into some of the more successful ones later on if you wanted, or we could do that now. <laughs> Uh, let's do it. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's talk about your favorite tools. I would love to do that. And we can, we can post links to them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the more expensive tools for us, which is not saying much cause we don't actually on a per tool basis have to spend that much these days. Um, SAS tools, uh, like software as a service tools are pretty inexpensive, but we've started using intercom. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed you know. that. Yeah. Okay. So if you go to our website, you'll see like a little chat. Our website is adriancrook.com. You'll see a little chat bubble pop up and might have my face in it. Uh, might have Tony, my business partner's face in it. And the great thing about that is it, you know, each of those messages can be customized depending on uh, uh, what page a user has entered the site from. And a lot of times people believe it's actually a human messaging them. <laughs> so they'll write back and, ga- and engage with it. And that immediately goes to my phone, my desktop, everything. So it, it just becomes like a chat. And I can find myself chatting with, you know, Microsoft or, um, you know, you name it, 
Pokemon, any of our larger clients, right down to smaller clients. And because I'm such a creature of chat, like I grew up on ICQ and all that kind of stuff, I really enjoy establishing rapports via chat. And uh, and I find it breaks down a lot of the formality barriers that might come with certainly email and to a lesser extent phone. Right. So I've found that I can't remember what it costs us. I think it costs us about 75 bucks a month or something. But it paid for itself almost instantly. We had a deal come in that was probably worth, I don't know, about... 40, 50,000 or so. And uh, that came in by intercom. So, you know. <laughs> so if you're doing kind of B2B sort of stuff, this is a tool that puts a little a little um, icon on the bottom of your website and people can click on it and basically start a conversation with you or someone else on your team that will uh, come to your phone, come to, come to your email, wherever you are. Yeah. So, I mean, Tony, my business partner, and I, we... Uh, uh, we both have intercom installed on our phones, so basically one of us is going to grab that incoming chat as soon as it happens, and that a conversation gets assigned to that person, and then um, I'm usually driving them towards uh, towards a phone conversation, and we use a whole other tool called, uh, oh, geez, uh, let me find the name for it here. Schedule uh, once. Uh, no, no, uh, you can book me. Calendly, okay, you can book me. You can book me. Yeah. So we drive to my custom you can book me link, which is embedded on our website. It won't say the URL here. But yeah. like I use yeah, that, that to schedule this podcast. Oh, brilliant. There you go. So yeah, it's uh then, you know, like that's that takes away that back and forth in terms of, you know, a lot of times when we're dealing with overseas clients, we've got a you know, you'll be like, How does Monday at three work? And then like twenty four hours later they'll respond and say, No, I can't do that. How about Tuesday at four? And you'll spend like two, three days trying to book a phone call. <laughs> Whereas, you know, giving them a calendar link cuts that right down to hours. So so those are probably two of the more useful tools. I mean, we use about twenty different ones at least. So I think people if people want to meet with you, it's adriancrook.com slash meet. Oh, you gave away the URL. <laughs> That's right, right? <laughs> Yeah, sure. You, That's it, just off the dome. Out. That's just off the dome, AC. Right. Well, it's meant to be rememberable or memorable, rather. But uh, yeah, so yeah, M-E-E-T, adrincrook.com uh, slash meet. And then you can just book a phone call right in there, and I'll call you on your Skype. Um, I've obviously like blocked off every, you know, all the times I've got to take the kids to and from school or, you know, I'm going to the gym or something. Don't worry, you're not going to book a phone call over my gym appointment. But <laughs> You know, it's all just, uh, it's all on autopilot that way. It works pretty well. All right. Any other tools that uh, that you're finding really valuable in, in your work? Uh, that are truly unique? I would say uh, unique to, um, well, obviously everyone uses Slack. I'm not going to bother covering Slack. Uh, you know, but, and that's a Vancouver company, so we're happy to represent them. But uh but BidSketch, if you're at all doing proposals, if you're a freelancer doing proposals in any sort of um, uh, creative field and you need to uh, you know, be able to put together proposals quickly with sort of dynamic fields and, uh, and maybe you have a few different templates uh, and then you want to track like open and close and you know, won and lost and all that sort of stuff, BidSketch is a fantastic way to do that and it's quite economical. I think it's about... Uh, 270 bucks a year or something so like about 30 canadian a month not bad yeah yeah i use a pretty cool tool called quiller it's oh, like I don't know that. q w l r there might be an i in there it might be a vowel in there i don't <laughs> yeah, know exactly oh that's um, cool yeah 
it's not as feature-rich uh, as BidSketch, but it, it creates very beautiful proposals. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. It's, it's cool. nice. So those are some, some great B2B tools. What about some of the rewards of kind of breaking out and doing your own thing the way you have? How, how's it been for you now that you've been doing it almost 10 years? Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, I don't know where that time went. I mean, I'm sort of, I'm pretty much ruined for full-time work. I, you know, I'm sure maybe one day this all just crash and burn and I'll have to go get a full-time job. But I'm not sure I know how to function in that environment anymore. <laughs> You've been saying that for like five years, man. Yes, I know. Like a broken record. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I love it. Obviously, it comes with, like I said before, its own set of stresses, but the ability to be flexible with your time. Um, I love the idea that the effort I put in is directly correlated with the, with reward. I mean, I, you know, I can't control necessarily the amount of clients that that we get. I mean, I can certainly step up my efforts in that regard, but it's, you know, I can't make people do business with us, but generally there is a, a correlation between, between effort and reward that is really pleasing. That isn't necessarily true in a full-time environment where if you work more, you're just sort of given more work, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, it's, or if you, you know, maybe you're not playing the political game, right. You, you're still going to get passed up. Like I was never the best at going out for drinks afterwards with the guys and doing all that kind of like soft politicking that really gets you ahead in an employment kind of scenario. And, uh, and it's just nice not to have to give a shit about that anymore. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> cause it's not my personality and it never will be. So I totally know what you mean. I mean, I am absolutely the same way. Uh, and I've had a couple jobs where, you know, not doing that stuff was, was, um, it was completely mission critical to do it. And <laughs> it just was not my thing. No can't bring myself to do it exactly so i mean the rewards are like i see my kids more than most dads would i would think um because i'm you know i i can take them to school in the morning i can pick them up from school afterwards um i have a lot of flexibility in my time i can work from anywhere we don't have an office we haven't had an office the whole time we've been in business uh we have like a a place like a co-working space that can also receive our mail and we can host meetings at uh, when clients come into town. But, you know, because the, like my business partner and I are in the same city, um, but our associates are all over the place. And that's, you know, part of the reason why they work with us is they're allowed to be all over the place. It doesn't make any sense to have an office and then start insisting that people come into an office because I don't even want to go into an office and neither does Tony. So, I mean, when I, when I first worked with you, I was, I was, uh, running a, a design team at Zynga, and you were living in Mexico. Yeah, I lived in Playa del Carmen for three years. And so we met because I came up and started consulting for Zynga and would sort of live in San Francisco. I think I was consulting with Zynga and Iwin, I think, at the same time. If I'm not mistaken, I think I was still consulting with Iwin, or maybe it was the year before. In any case, I would just sort of live out of hotels for two or three weeks at a time, um, working for one or both of those companies. And that was back when I was still very much a one-man band. I might have had one other sort of part-time associate at the time. But yeah, that, that we met on Frontierville, and you were like the producer of the design team. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. You know, other than, than Zynga and Iowin, what, what kinds of studios come to you? Mm-hmm. Who, who is a good fit for working with, with uh, Adrian Crook and Associates? We, we try our best to help out indies, but I would say that at this point where we're at, we're probably less useful to indies. Like the few indies that we do work with, we've developed like a build review service where, um, you know, we can spend like one week every month uh 
you know, spending about 15 to 20 hours just drilling down on a build that they've generated and um, circling, maybe circling back on feedback we've given them the last time or generating new feedback and sort of just kind of nudging them back on course or uh, giving them some targeted feedback. But that's probably like the lowest tier thing we can do. Uh, and that's that's what we've done for some indies. But otherwise, we're kind of like a a medium to large studio consultancy. And I would say 25% or 30% of our clients are fall in that large category. Um, and they're the, you know, uh, EAs and Microsofts and Zynga's and what have you of the world, uh, Pokemon, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, we work with some smaller ones. We're working with like Boss Fight. Who's your perfect client? What studio or what what developer is like the right person to get help from from you and your your team? Yeah. Well, I mean, what we do is design and product management um, for mobile freemium. And we've, you know, we also do some development. Like for we're working on a couple of things right now where we're, you know, we've been responsible for the development of those products one is a game um called hempiregame.com h-e-m-p-i-r-e never heard of it yeah well you worked on that you you and me sat down at the napkin sketch phase and you designed the original uh the original concept and you know like gdd basically for that game and we're on it uh for quite a while quite a while if i remember correctly so yeah. Indeed. No. Yeah. So we do product management and design on like um, I would say half of our pro- products we work on are pre-launch. So they're you know people clients bringing us on to sort of validate what they've what they're going to be heading to soft launch with, and half of them are post-launch. So maybe it, they've launched and it hasn't really gone as well as they'd like, and they're trying to figure out why and if they can improve it and turn it around. Or sometimes um, sometimes they want us to make a recommendation as to whether or not they continue investing in it at all or just kill it. Uh, so um, it really depends, uh, but I would say any studio that has uh, has a sort of an open mind and willing to work with outside help, um, you know, it, are people we enjoy working with. Okay, so since two thousand eight, can you guess about how many studios you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of stopped counting a year or two ago when we were up over a hundred. So it's been a lot. So these days I'll sometimes get asked on a call like, well, have you ever worked on, you know, such and such type of game? And uh, I feel bad because often I can't even remember all, you know, all the examples of games you know, in, in that particular genre that we've worked on because it has been a lot uh, over a long time. So, yeah, we've worked with, you know, a ton of, of different studios. Um, you know, uh, I think we worked uh, on some weird stuff, too, like uh Panasonic was launching like a handheld uh, freemium MMO player way back in the day. And we worked on that for like two years before they killed it at the 11th hour. I don't think that's secret or anything. I think there were some public images out there they had already announced. But uh, that was a weird experience, basically working on the launch of a hardware platform. Yeah, I can think of a project that uh, I worked with you guys on. The um, and, and I actually don't know how much I can say, but it was a... Uh, <laughs> Intel was the client, and they had a a huge brand for a game that never saw the light of day. Oh yeah, I remember that. Do you one. know what happened that to that? Uh, no, I don't know what happened with it's that. It's dead, and right? I mean, yeah, that's not it's, coming it's out. Dead. It's nothing that we've been uh, roped back into. That's for sure. It's a shame because that looked really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not public knowledge, as far as I know. So, and there's you know there are lots of things like that where we're not supposed to talk about what we work on. So. Um, 
So we've worked with, you know, some of the really biggest brands and, you know, can't really mention them. You know, I might maybe be able to mention it on a, like in like a one-on-one conversation, but I certainly can't, uh, can't publicize it. So. Okay. So after working with over a hundred studios, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see studios making either from a design standpoint or from a production standpoint, or in terms of yeah. just their thinking about what they need to be doing to, to be successful? Oh man, there are a few. So I, smaller studios, I see all the time, not, uh, you know, that whole like, well, just launching is like the, the tip of the iceberg. You know, the rest of the iceberg is live operations and going from there. Like I, the I mean, they studios, don't realize that. Yeah, they don't realize that. Most of those small, well, not most of the smaller studios, but a, t- a mistake typical, typical of a smaller studio is um, launching and then really kind of betting the farm on starting to get those checks rolling through the door like 60 days after the product launches. (laughs) It's like, oh, geez, I think there's probably a whole business in just picking up and salvaging games where companies have just run out of gas uh, because of poor production planning and and spending in that regard. Um, And then, uh, you know, another mistake I see companies make of of every size is um is you know there, you actually sort of dis- defined two mistakes there one was uh not planning for the long soft launch period to get the product right but the other was not having the kind of publishing side pieces in place to yeah. do the analytics create a roadmap uh understand the customer get acquisition channels set up you're Am absolutely I right. That right yeah i mean i should really go into more in, in more depth with that answer because it's funny. I was just looking at Tony and I were meeting uh, yesterday or the day before, and there was a client that had come to us wanting us to build out. They had a game on web that they wanted to build out on mobile, and we had quoted them on building it out, doing the design and the development ourselves. And uh, they just decided to do it internally, which is fine. And then you know we saw it released a few months ago, and so we went back the other day and took a look at it, and it was rated like three point three or something terrible on hey, uh, Google. Mario Run. <laughs> yeah, on Google Play, and I think it had like 500 downloads or something. Oh, you know, like oh, exactly. So I mean, if they even spent, I'm sure it, you, it'd be tough to spend less than like 60k, let's say, internally of internal time developing that. So you know, I hope that those two or 300 unique people that maybe are still playing that game <laughs> enjoyed what you're what you gave them essentially for free. Because uh, you failed to launch that with that kind of support you you mentioned there, like you know you treat it, there's very much this among some studios still this idea that if you build it they will come, which is something that hasn't existed in the app store since like 2010, nine, you know. Like, right. I mean, we're we are in the opposite of that world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's why you know if you can get a license, if you can partner with someone that has any sort of digital reach to. Uh, get like organic user acquisition to average down your UA costs, then that's kind of what you have to do. There's almost no other way to cut above the clutter. I mean, you can hope for some word of mouth hit like 2048 or Flabby Bird or, you know, whatever. But that's uh, that's like playing the lottery. Right. I mean, you, you need some sort of, obviously you need a product strategy, but I think people fail to realize that they also need some kind of special acquisition strategy mm. uh, to be competitive because most most of your competitors do have one. Yeah, and I think they don't understand how long they might have to spend in soft launch as well to, you know, to be tuning up the game so that whatever the strategy they do have for growing that game isn't just uh, sort of pouring water into a leaky bucket. You know, like that game has to be ready when you actually go uh, worldwide with a hard launch, and um, that's just a step that we're working with 
I, I would say we have a client right now that is uh, because they have a hard ship date tied to a license that the soft launch will effectively be non-existent and that's beyond everybody's control, definitely beyond our control. Uh, so we're doing our best to implement an economy for them that uh, is not going to fail. But, um, you know, you run into these situations all the time and unfortunately they're not always under your control. That's an interesting thing because, okay, so you need some sort of acquisition strategy. Let's say it's a license. Now you need the experience to know what you need in that licensing deal because mm -hmm. you do that wrong, you could get a hard date on your license that isn't going to yeah. work with what it takes to, to kind of make free-to-play work these days. Yeah, well, and, and in fact, you were good enough to direct us to one of your guys. I don't know if you want to give him a shout-out here. Lev, we interviewed him on the show. Oh, sweet. Okay, awesome. Good, yeah. So one of our clients needed that specific type of licensing help, and, and uh, Lev was amazing and still is amazing working with us on that. But yeah, sometimes... You know, if that license is a movie, uh, there's not much you can do about the movie you know, when it's going to launch. Um, so, but yeah, if it's a, another type of license, it's perhaps a bit more flexible. But as far as other types of mistakes, I mean, there there are plenty. Um, not asking for money soon enough, asking for money too soon from your players, the, those sort of mistakes. You know, we, we see monetization still shuffled off too late in the game. Um, so, you know, again, like similar to this project we're working on currently where we're sort of implementing monetization with two months to go in the project, you know, <laughs> it's like, yes, we're going to, you know, if you, if you want to trust anyone with it, it should be us because we've done it a bunch of times. Uh, but that's not how product development should work. I mean, it, especially in freemium, you need that, as you know, you need that monetization strategy right from the start, right from the top. And it needs to be developed into the product right from the get-go. So. Now, what, what about third-party tools? Because I think this is an area where people might tend to go awry, too, either choosing you know poor third-party kind of partners for analytics or some of these other publishing pieces we're talking about, um, or just trying to do everything themselves. There should be no reason why you're doing tools yourself in this day and age. I mean, the price of tools, like, you know, just looking at my spreadsheet that we were going over before in terms of SaaS stuff that we use and you know some of our most expensive things are like $73 a month I mean I understand that's different in a b2b sense than um, some of the tools you and might localytics use localytics or something like that yeah sure but I mean uh, what that uh, at for very few companies does it make sense to roll your own I mean I think you'd have to be very large before that started to make sense uh, because if you certainly if you're a company that measures their staff in, um, you know, in in two or even three digits in terms of staff size. Uh, I still don't think it's worth developing your own tools unless it's a specific tool to accomplish something that isn't catered to in the market. Um, you know, but it's certainly there are so many freemium tool options there. If you've ever been to a conference, you know that like all the sponsor banners are replete with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for us, we're often asked. Uh, we're in the middle of a, an engagement right now for a large media company that uh, where we're basically just doing a, a metrics and tools audit. Um, so they've got a bunch of stuff that's that have been implemented across several titles and uh, they need us to kind of come in, take a look at what's working and what isn't. And they've got some internal goals that we have to kind of uh, absorb and, and factor into our decisions. But basically they need to um, emerge on the other side of it, confident that the tools that we're recommending are, uh, are going to deliver the best results. So, um, so it's such a, crazy world right there out there right now in terms of third-party tools that 
some of our work is becoming helping people curate that. Obviously, a lot of that is kind of bespoke case by case basis. Do you have any go to tools that you guys like to use? No, I would say not at this point. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking into developing our own specific tool and I won't get into what that that is uh, something that we just don't see out there right now. Some of the tools that we use more on the business side might be things like Priora data, uh, just to help buttress some of our observations when we're doing, say, design audits and we're making recommendations around you know comparable titles. As far as the like, actual tools to do with monetization, no, I, we've worked with pretty much everything, so I wouldn't say there's a go-to tool. It's never really in our purview anyways to sort of select and implement that tool because we're usually coming into um, an environment where it's already been chosen for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... How do you see your company and your service evolving from here? And that's sort of my focus, and it's been my focus for years. Um, you know, I think now that we're we're about a dozen designers and product managers, and you know, other types of staff. So my role really for the company is business development, talent acquisition, leadership. Tony's role is operations, finance, um, you know, we both play account management roles, obviously, in terms of interfacing with clients. Uh, but really, it's trying to stay ahead of where the industry is going. I mean, we've, one one way to do that is to hire people that are vastly more smart, more smart, smarter than I am. That is so illustrative of what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a there virtually everyone who works for us uh, is like a real genius in what they do and, and does their job probably better than I would have ever been able to do it. It was a different world, I think, when I started. Um, now we have like, you know, one of our guys, Peter, is like a, basically like a Harvard economist in terms of, well, he went to Harvard and he studied economies <laughs> or economics. So, you know, like that's the kind of talent you need these days to be able to reverse engineer in-game economies. And uh and so, like, just knowing that that's where that market was headed a few years ago uh, towards that really granular kind of um, in-game analyses and, and away from the softer stuff. Uh, you know, I remember you'd back at the beginning of free-to-play, you used to show up to conferences and, and the kind of nuggets of wisdom that, you know, people were dispensing, probably myself included, were like, well, you need to treat your free players as well as you treat your, you know, paying players. And that was – people would, like, be furiously writing that down. I mean, that – that shit does not count these days in terms of, that's like <laughs> fireside, you know, like right. folk wisdom or something. It's the table stakes knowledge is pretty high. It's super high. Yeah, exactly. So that, and that's where we've just gotten more and more specialized and we really are, um, you know, freemium monetization specialists. Obviously we can design fun games. You did a great job with Empire. Um, that game's in soft launch right now. And, uh, and that's a beautiful game. Um, so like we, you know, you need to have the table stakes to, to use your term are, you know, solid game design ability, like really, you know, awareness of where that bar is, but then you gotta, you gotta know how to design a business as well. And I think that's, that's the magic of freemium is you're not just like a console designer where, you know, is this fun? Yes. My job's done. I'm going to go home. You're, is this fun? And will it make money? Uh, and that finding those two skills sort of wrapped up in one person is, um, it, you know, it's not easy to do. And that's why a lot of companies come to us, um, because it, finding that type of skill set is very difficult. And uh, maybe they're located in a place where they can't get top flight talent to come to them or I mean, it's, or they're not, you know, it's like we get calls from. You know, when Zynga calls us, they're, you know, they're based in San Francisco. You know? 
EA calls us, sir. They've already hired all the top flight talent. You know, it's, yeah, it's just bizarre. Like, I remember asking Zynga. I was woken up one morning at, like, 8 a.m. on a Sunday from Zynga calling. It was so bizarre. This was in the last couple of years. And I'm like, why are you calling us? This was, um, I think I asked the same question of EA out in Burnaby when they called us to work on FIFA um, Ultimate Team uh, for mobile and uh, mm-hmm. and online, which you also worked on. I'm like, why do you need us? You acquired Playfish. Um, you know, and it, you know, that knowledge doesn't all get assimilated instantly across the entire organization. All of a sudden, they're freemium experts, you know. So there's uh, there's always a need for people uh, like us. Um but staying ahead of where the industry is going is, uh, you know, it's not trivial. Like things like VR, uh, knowing how much of your company to bet on investing in VR knowledge is, um, I don't have the answer to that. You know, will, will VR be this be what freemium was to our company for another company or for our company? Like if I suddenly started speaking on VR at conferences now, could I grow a whole VR specialty out of that? Do I want to? Maybe. Um, I don't think it will be it won't have the same immediate widespread effect that freemium had. Um, it'll grow more slowly, but it will be a business and it already is a business for some. Um, I don't know if I would bet my company on it at this point, uh, but we've done a VR project uh, one won, won a bunch of awards. It was cool. Uh, but it was that was early days. That was like two years ago now, and I, we still haven't really pivoted to focus on vr as a thing i think there's a lot of cash right now in vr there's a lot of jobs right now in vr but there's not necessarily a lot of real business in games in vr so there will be one day but uh, i i do think there's the potential for for a dip from here to there i think you're right i think you've got there will be a shakeout period there's a bunch of early cash and there, you know, maybe there are some people trying to establish like a beachhead for when that consolidation wave comes along mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone's price goes to goes down and some people can be snapped up. Um, we've I met with a company in L.A. actually a couple times ago when I was down there. I think it might have been in the fall that seemed to have quite a good early mover advantage in that area and they needed our design help. Because you know they had done hundreds and hundreds of hours of VR development, but just didn't have strong design chops in terms of you know making monetizable games. So you know I think there's still like I'm not sure we need to dive too heavily into VR to still have all of our skills apply. Uh, I think there are some obviously some aspects of design that are unique to VR, but uh, monetization is probably more transferable between just pure mobile and VR. I totally agree. I mean, I think that we're going to see we're going to see free to play take over more channels, and I think console is next. Yeah, and we haven't really done much console stuff. I think we've done some Steam stuff. We've done some Congregate stuff. I know some people that have done some console stuff, but it hasn't been a focus of ours. Like the first 13 years of my career were all console producing and designing console games. You know, it's it's definitely a fun space. What I didn't like about console was um, the limited audience, uh, the high barrier to entry in terms of like the device purchase itself. Uh, you know, so those are sort of probably two things that'll inhibit free to play's growth on that on those platforms. But as you get into like the tail end of a platform's life cycle, when, you know, remember when the, like the PlayStation two or three or whatever, you know, they're into like tens of millions of installed units, then it, you know, becomes less of an issue being able to do freemium at scale on a, on a console. But, um, these days I think you're still going to see like a lot of first party support for like a freemium title 
being what's driving its success because they're going to want to showcase that this is something that you know here's this new channel you know that that can be done and that you know could cause some people to follow suit and that the real market is probably something slightly below that which is supported by the first party yeah i think that's true i mean the other thing is you'll see a mark like you said you'll see a market kind of a down market when the console is at the end of its life cycle. I, I think the first console to really have a serious free-to-play piece component was the Xbox 360 mm-hmm. at yeah. the end of its life. You know, World of Tanks came out yeah. when it was basically done after Xbox One was out. Yeah, where you got a bunch of people with the hardware in their living rooms and they're looking for what to do with it next. And so you have a wide enough install base that maybe uh, like a free product has a, has a chance of doing well. Um, right. It's yeah. getting passed down to the kids or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you want to really focus on kind of this freemium business. I mean, that's been the focus for now almost 10 years. Uh, we used to have more Facebook titles that we worked on when Facebook was more of a a platform um, equal to mobile or better than mobile for a few years there uh, for freemium titles. But now... Really, when we have clients come to us that have a Facebook game as part of their mix, or maybe it's Congregate, they're using those platforms to deploy and iterate quickly on a particular design with the thinking that it's going to end up on mobile. Uh, it's just a quick test bed sort of area. So we don't see we don't see Facebook as strong in the mix as it used to be, but we're still so we're pretty much purely, mobile freemium uh we do have some non-game clients which has been interesting uh nothing that i don't think i don't think i can mention any of them but really cool stuff with like large media company sort of stuff um so that's been kind of fascinating Uh, i used to work in interactive advertising myself uh just for like five minutes in the middle of my career (laughs) uh, which is probably enough but it you know there's a lot of a lot of that market where the creatives in that in the advertising agencies are selling into their clients, the big brands, uh, game executions that they don't know how to fully design and develop. And that's where we've sort of come in a couple times and picked up the slack, run with the full design and developed it and that sort of stuff. So uh, that stuff is pretty interesting as well. I mean, obviously, games are our first love. Uh, but yeah, like right now, I, that's kind of where we sit. And uh, and we're really enjoying it is the, is the freemium mobile stuff. And we're sort of playing around with other types of ways to serve our clients. So we launched a service called teardownclub.com, um, which is basically uh, weekly uh, game design deconstructions that... Uh, uh, that you can subscribe to. Um, these are the kind of uh, game deconstructions that uh, product managers inside EA and Microsoft would do to serve their internal product group. So, you know, maybe they'd break down how the latest mobile racing game uh, monetizes and they would share that with their other racing game studios. And uh, that's not the kind of information that is widely circulated um, outside of those organizations. So we started to offer that as a service and, and saw some early success with that in terms of... Uh, in terms of getting that out to people. So that's something we're going to sort of continue to look into and play around with Teardown Club. It should be teardownclub.com. And then we've got some other ideas in terms of tools that I think it's kind of, we've reached the point where we have so much internal knowledge uh, and we have an idea of what we'd love to have at our fingertips in terms of being able to call up information that we need quickly to make excellent design and monetization decisions. And we're putting some investment behind developing that out into an internal tool first, and then maybe thinking about making it an external tool. So, well, uh, 
we will put we will put links to to all that stuff on the show notes page and you know maybe when you've got that tool ready to go you want to come back on the on playmakers that'd be awesome yeah thanks jordan thanks for coming on it's been it's been great to uh shoot the breeze adrian <laughs> sorry sweet sweet hanging some sweet sweet hanging um am i gonna see a gdc we're not sure. Um, you know, I go to the GDC every year, and I think it's one of those things where we look at the ROI of GDC, where we spend like, you know, at a typical conference, we'll spend five to ten thousand dollars attending a conference. You know, whether depending on how many people we bring, I just find I'm much more successful visiting clients outside of conferences or mm. potential clients outside mm. of conferences. There's just so much going on at conferences that you you know you sit down at it for like a hurried twenty three minute meeting at a coffee shop and. It's one of 40 or 50 meetings you're doing in a three or four day period. And uh, I don't enjoy it as much. And I don't think the people that uh, you know attend enjoy it as much. It's a great class reunion. But for us, I'm not sure the numbers are there. So so uh, you can when you can spend that money on stuff like content marketing or investing directly into your business, it makes sense to sort of think twice about whether or not to attend every last industry conference. Adrian Crook, always doing it his own way. Thanks for coming on, Adrian. It's been great. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Playmakers. You can find links to all the tools, all the games, and anything else that came up in in the episode at playmakerspodcast.com. That's also where we'll put links to how to contact Adrian. And of course, that's where you can find other episodes, where you can subscribe to the show. And you know I'm going to hit you up for a review because that's what I really need. So if you're enjoying the show and if you're getting something out of it, please do write me a review. I really appreciate it. And that is all for this episode. See you soon on the next episode of Playmakers. Playmakers.